There's just something about the Irish that we Americans seem to appreciate. Whether or not your own ancestry has any branches that trace back to the Emerald Isle, I find that a conversation with most any Irishman or woman of today can be a real treat. Coming up, humorist and writer Maeve Higgins shares her observations on life in America after emigrating from County Cork to New York 10 years ago. Something that I love about America is the kind of openness and the curiosity that I've found here and that I get to express here. Close to Maeve's hometown is the small port of Kinsale. Barry Maloney has lived there his whole life. He tells us what makes Kinsale stand out as a favorite among Ireland's brightly painted small towns. Yeah, I mean, when you stand in the town center there, you got this feeling you're kind of nestled in the palm of a protected hand. An insider's guide to Kinsale and Maeve Higgins on living in the USA. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. What started as a 6th century monastic settlement and was once known as the last stop before the edge of the world has become a culinary seaside getaway in Ireland's County Cork. In just a bit, we'll hear about Kinsale from an expert guide with stories and history from his hometown. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with the refreshingly frank views and wry sense of humor from Irish-born Maeve Higgins to help us get a better grip on our rather serious times in America. Like so many of her fellow Irish men and women, Maeve Higgins left the old country for America to see what she could make of herself in New York City. She'd written some popular books in Ireland, and her skill as a stand-up comedian came in handy, hosting Irish TV shows and writing newspaper columns. Over the last ten years in America, she seems to be doing okay for herself. She wrote a book, Maeve in America, about what it's like to be an immigrant in the U.S. lately. She had a leading role in a 2020 horror comedy movie, Extraordinary. And she recently starred in a play, Autumn Royal, at the Irish Rep in New York, in a role written especially for her. Maeve Higgins has a new book of her observations out now. It's called Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. Maeve joins us now from her home in Brooklyn to tell us all about it. Hey, Maeve, nice to have you with us again. Oh, thanks. It's great to talk to you again. I just love to get the take of an Irish wit on what's going on here in the United <laughs> States. And you've got such a great niche having uh, adopted this culture, but keeping a foot in the old one. Yes, indeed. I go back and forth between, you know, feeling feeling Irish and then feeling like a New Yorker because I've been here for 10 years now. And I'm also, you know, I've been getting to explore the rest of the country and visit places and learn about the links between the two the yeah. two countries as well. So it's it's a fascinating trip for me, you know. And it's and also you've had the, an advantage of being intimate with both cultures so you can be a better connector between the two cultures. I think so. When I first got here, there was so much of the US that was familiar to me just from culture, you know, music and films. Oh, yeah. and um, But the longer I'm here, the kind of smaller and deeper connections I'm uncovering all the time. I want to talk to you about that, but I'm just really fascinated by last time we talked, when you, were, you were describing sharing an apartment in New York, and it was you were sharing it with a lot of rats and a lot of dreams. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Well, it's been a couple of years. How are the rats and how are the dreams? But Rick, do you know that there are even more rats than ever before? There was an article in the New York Times about how they're having the time of their lives because now, you know, we're, we have these restaurants out on the street, so people are dropping like pizza crusts and the rats are partying. They're thrilled. They're so oh. chubby and they're so happy. 
Um, and then as for the dreams, um, they're still alive too. It was funny when you were reading out my introduction, I was thinking, God, I do a lot of different weird things. I mean, basically, Rick, anyway, I get to show off, I take it. Yeah. Well, you've got that's you're you're like a <laughs> tour guide um, uh, bringing your culture into our culture. And your last book, um, Maven America, was such a hit. And this new one, Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. Give us a what's the the why the title? Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. There's a few reasons behind it. I write a lot about New York and about how I get around New York and so many of us do, which is the subway. Um, And I find that a fascinating kind of a little universe underneath the universe of the city. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, most of us are down there at one point and we're all literally pressed up close together. And it's a way I have of trying to cope with (laughs) being on the train and using public transport um, especially, you know, during a pandemic when we really could be a risk to one another. Um, oh, yeah. and, and we also are the, we're all we've got, right? We have to look out for one another. I love that idea that, yes, the, the subway is kind of the great equalizer. We're all down there and, and on the, the cover of your book is such a great uh, drawing of you, just surrounded by this mosh pit of New York culture. <laughs> and uh, when I'm, if I'm in Paris or I was just in Athens, it's the same thing. I sit there and I sit sort of like in my own little corner, but totally observing everything around me. It's like swimming in a tide pool of, of that corner of humanity. Well, that's a beautiful way of putting it, actually, because you're you're part of it, but you're also looking at it. And I think like a tide pool, like any ecosystem, everything in there relies on one another, you know. You, you have a concept called practical cosmopolitanism. That kind of relates to what we're talking about. What What is yeah. practical cosmopolitanism? So it's not my own term. It's a sociological term. And it kind of means that you learn enough about each other's cultures to kind of rub along nicely. So um, there's a really amazing book. It's called, I think it's called On the Seven. And it's about um, a train line in Queens where there are, you know, 80 languages spoken and people from every nook and cranny of the world. And you kind of just deal with one another, you know. Maeve, I think you put your finger on it there because mm-hmm. I'm, I've got this feeling about the social contract. And my under, I'm, no, I'm no philosopher this way or anything, but, mm-hmm. you know, John Locke, to me, it's like the, the rugged individual. We got lots of room spread out. Don't tread on me. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt somebody else. And then in Europe, it's more dense population. And there's, it's the Rousseau version, which is everybody gives up a little bit of their freedom so they can all live together peaceably. And maybe this term practical cosmopolitanism is something about that. When you're crowded together on a subway train, you live together. Yes, I think that nobody is exempt from it. Even if you're in the middle of nowhere, you're still going to be relying on, you know, a scientist in a lab somewhere. Yes. Yeah. I do believe that actually, you know, having lived in a few different places and just the older I get, um, Mm -hmm. the more clear that becomes to me. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Irish-born comedian and writer Maeve Higgins. Her latest book of observations is called Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. She's also written Maeve in America, essays by a girl from somewhere else. And you'll see her byline on columns in the New York Times and the Irish Times. Maeve posts to Twitter at Maeve Higgins. That's M-A-E-V-E. Hey, Maeve, it is so fun to talk to you about um, an Irish perspective on Americans. 
And you you wrote about the pandemic, and and you wrote, I don't want any damn lessons to be coming out of it. You know, like right. um, you don't, everybody's <laughs> asking, what's the what's the silver lining, or how's it going to change you, or something like that. I know. But you had an interesting take on it because you spent part of the pandemic in New York City and part of it in Ireland. Uh, what did you take away from that? It, well, you know, one big takeaway was. While all my friends and my community in New York were getting vaccinated, we were waiting in Ireland, you know. So there was kind of healthy 30-something-year-olds getting vaccinated in the US. While in in Ireland, you know, we were so worried about my parents who were in their 60s. And so I kind of realized the difference between worlds, even though we are so connected. I think the US and Ireland is. But in in funny ways like that... um, you, know, you mean the difference in worlds in that uh, some societies may have the ready access to huge the advantages, exactly. And you know, I have siblings who live in the Middle East, and they again had a very different experience of the pandemic. So I think it was, you know, it was one of those moments for me where I realized, oh yes, like we do feel like we're all so interconnected, and we're and it's a globalized world. But there's still just these huge, huge chasms between us. And it's about how to match up with that and also how to move between those worlds. Because I've since come back to America and, uh, you know, I've been uh, I've been back on stage. And then it's the question of, oh, well, do we insist on seeing vaccines? Does everybody have to be masked? And it's so political here, whereas in Ireland, it's not really. It's just kind of a science question. And it's not that Ireland is not political because, of course, there's so much stuff that's politicized <laughs> yes. in Ireland. I mean, yes. if any place would have a politicized a mask, <laughs> exactly. uh, Ireland You're so would. so right. Yes. But you guys have managed to keep that above the fray just you know, for maybe, common sense. Maybe if the, if the masks had different colors, then we'd be in trouble in Ireland oh, if there was you an can't orange wear mask orange or a green on a mask. Yeah. <laughs> Um, That's so yeah. interesting. Ireland is so steeped in politics that you have to be careful what colors you wear <laughs> when you go into a pub, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it, that's an exaggeration, but, you know, that's you're so right about some things being politicized in Ireland and then people over here not batting an eyelid. And something that I love about America is the kind of openness and the curiosity that I've found here and that I get to express here. Whereas Ireland, I think, is very friendly on the surface, but it's hard to, to get underneath. Irish-born Maeve Higgins is our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her latest book of tales and observations from her home base in Brooklyn is called Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. She posts frequently to Twitter, at Maeve Higgins. You you wrote a, a wonderful piece where you were talking about how Americans are terrible at small talk. Uh, <laughs> you said that we lack the Irish gift of gab and levity uh, and truly meaningless small talk, and that bugs you. What is it? I mean, is it we're so just sincere in our exchanges, it seems like. Yes, I think that's what I found, you know, Rick. I mean, not you, of course, um, but I do think that... Um, you know, you meet people here and it's sort of like, OK, well, what do you do? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? You know, people are so sincere and straight to the point, whereas Irish people, I mean, this also could be a form of dishonesty, but we love to dance around the point and we <laughs> love to take our time getting to the to the truth, I suppose. Whereas Americans don't have time for that. They're just, you know, busy and they want the information. And I kind of miss that. um the kind of dilly-dallying around and the, you know, not really saying anything of great importance because I think actually that's when you do get to know somebody. Hmm. You might you might know 
where they grew up or what their job is. But but you get them, you get their spirit a bit more than, you know, just straight fact swapping. So that kind of art of conversation and storytelling, it's not that it's absent here, far from it, but it's just more common in Ireland, I think. Uh, and that you, you've sort of uh, warmed us up to just celebrating a, a nice evening in the pub uh, <laughs> over know. a pint of Guinness. And, <laughs> you know, people don't want to know, uh, you know, how big's your house and what's your job when at the at the pub. They're just that wonderful gift of gab. And, well, they want to know, are you going to get the next round? <laughs> are you, that, so what, what would your advice be? Let's just I'd like to just close our conversation with we want to connect with the Irish people and we're all going to go to a pub uh, and uh, we could sit in the corner and just observe. But if you really want to connect and and have a good time, what's your advice? Oh, I mean, certainly if they play music, that's fantastic. If they have a story to tell, that's fantastic. You could also just ask, um, this is so basic, Rick, but like you could just ask how questions, you know, Um, how are you feeling? How did you get here? You know, instead of, you know, what, you know, what do you do? Who do you know? I think how questions are really fun and roundabout and they really get the get the stories flowing. And you could uh, throw in a few uh, words of, of Gaelic or Old Irish. <laughs> you could, just That's... to baffle them all together. And if you've had enough to drink, you won't even notice. <laughs> so how do you say, um, here's to you in a pub in, in Gaelic? Well, of course, it's Slancha. Slancha. Yeah, good health. That definitely. right there. Maeve Higgins tells us what inspired the title of her latest book in just a bit. And later, tour guide Barry Maloney joins us from his hometown of Kinsale, Ireland's southernmost port town, where he gives history and ghost walk tours. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's already been more than 10 years now since Maeve Higgins emigrated from Cove in County Cork to New York City on a special visa for artists and people that the United States government calls aliens of extraordinary ability. Since then, she's kept busy doing stand-up comedy, starring in a movie and an off-Broadway play, and co-hosting the Star Talk and Social Distance podcasts. We first spoke with Maeve about the observations she wrote about in her book Maeve in America back in 2019. She's with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what she's included in her latest book, Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. Now, Maeve, these are complicated times in America, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And Ireland has had its own complicated times. I mean, a very messy 20th century, I think we can say. As you've observed what's going on with a deeply divided America, what could we learn from Ireland's struggles? Because talk about deeply divided. For centuries, you were fighting Britain. As soon as you win your independence from Britain, you have a civil war, which is just as bloody and costly to your country as the fight against England. Um, What kind of observations have you made given your past as an Irish person? Mm. So I'm reluctant to draw, you know, direct lines, of course, between the two experiences, because I think um, how our states and our nations came into being are so different. But I think one thing, I suppose, coming from, you know, a formerly colonized country that's dealing with the kind of leftovers, the very destructive and still impactful to this day leftovers of that colonization, I can see some echoes of that happening um, today in America with things like, like, I mean, actual physical things like the monuments, the statues, the street names, the names of army bases. Ireland had to deal with that too. Well, yeah, didn't you have right now in Dublin, uh, if I understand correctly, there's a a huge monument, the Spire, 
which is just this spire that just rockets straight into the sky. Doesn't that mark the place of a statue that was honoring um, a British Empire figure who was blown up by the Irish Patriots? (laughs) Yes. I mean, you guys blow them up. You don't ask permission. You just come out at night and you blow it up. And then you put a new monument on there that says, Ireland is independent. (laughs) I know. I don't really know why I'm laughing. I kind of love the the idea of tragedy plus time is comedy. Right. So this is historical. Okay, that's, that's why good. It's I like that. Tragedy fun. plus time is <laughs> yeah. comedy. Because you got to, you know, you laugh, but you go, is it okay to laugh? Well, mm-hmm. I think it's okay to laugh of what the what the Irish did to that um, okay, statue good. that, that yeah. celebrated Br- British colonialism. You mm-hmm. blew it up. Blew and, it up and nobody was hurt. It was kind of like an official explosion. Everybody went to the pub after and they sang <laughs> funny songs about it. And it was a celebration, you know. Um, and, and now you got this stiletto in the ghetto. I mean, you've got so yeah. many names for this. Thing. It sticks right up in this colorful neighborhood of Dublin. That's right. That's right. And there's other ways, too, I think, of, you know, reinventing um, what those statues mean, because one of them, you know, he was this sort of terrible British army officer and uh, he was on a horse, a big statue of him on a horse in Phoenix Park, which is a beautiful public park in Dublin. Yeah. And first of all, I think in the, you know, early part of the century, they, some little rebels came along and sawed his head off in the middle of the night and they threw it into the river. And then the police found the head and said, oh, this is terrible. We better stick it back on again. Oh, and then, you know, they stuck the head on. It was a bit kind of scallways. So in the end, anyway, they, uh, someone else blew the whole thing up and uh, they then kept it in a museum and then eventually, you know, Field Marshal Goff, his name was. Uh-huh. Um, eventually, some, you know, of his descendants said, oh, we should probably take that over to our fancy estate in England. So they took the remains of his statue. And then an Irish sculptor heard about it and he made a model of the horse because it was a beautiful equine piece of art. Uh-huh. And he made a model of the horse and he stuck a teenage girl uh, from Dublin on top of it. So now there's this stunning statue of a teenage girl in a tracksuit because there's a tradition of urban horseback riding in Dublin. And so in a way that echoes this, you know, this terrible man who did huge damage in the colonies, you know, in India and China and in Ireland. Um, I mean, he was the embodiment of of a mm -hmm. a horrible, harsh, brutal um, keeping down of the local people that were colonized. Yes, he was. He was. And so I think it's, you know, I think it's correct that his statue was removed. But then, and you, I, did then something with a little, you did something with a little bit of creativity and a little bit of fun to replace it. That's a beautiful <laughs> exactly. thing. Exactly. And held up the kind of local people and their own traditions and the things that they were proud of. So so, um, so then now w- mm-hmm. wearing your bicultural wit hat, you then went to <laughs> Richmond, Virginia, and and you saw the Confederate statues that have stood there for years, frankly celebrating people who wanted to fight and die to defend slavery and divide our nation. Yeah, they've since been removed, as you know. But um, I was there a couple of years ago and I was really quite stunned at all of these, uh, so many of them, these Confederate monuments and, you know, really imposing and looking down over the city. And I spoke to people who lived there and I try to understand it. And then I just came across another statue that's in Richmond and it's called Rumours of War. The artist Kehinde Wiley made it. Mm -hmm. And it's a teenager on a horse who (laughs) is looking out and he's he's a black teenager. He's on this horse. It's magnificent. And I kind of thought, how did 
did they know one another? Like, how is this a coincidence? And I read all about the statue and the meaning of it. Mm-hmm. And he put that statue there to kind of be in conversation with the existing you Confederate know, it's, monuments. It's kind of like Mount Rushmore and Crazy mm-hmm. Horse. I mean, what a what a nice positive way to to make a statement, you know. Mm-hmm. Maeve Higgins is joining us from her home base in Brooklyn right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can find frequent postings from her on Twitter at Maeve Higgins. That's spelled M-A-E-V-E. When we're talking about monuments to difficult times in the past, uh, the Kilmainham Jail, to me, in Dublin, is one of the most inspiring places anywhere in Europe. Have you been to the Kilmainham Jail? I have, yeah. Um, and and you're right, it's a, it's an incredible historic site. It's also been used, some people might know it from, from films, because it's, it's a very classic, atmospheric, it's, isn't it's it? It's a classic Victorian kind of prison, mm-hmm. and it held all of the the Nathan Hales and Ethan Allens and heroes, you know, uh, Patrick Henry's of the Irish struggle for independence from from England. You know, we do have that similar heritage. We both fought mm-hmm. uh, heroically to get our independence from from London. And in the museum, you've got the letters that they sent home to their mothers the night before they were going to go to their death for their passion for a, uh, an independent Ireland. And there's no doubt that that Kilmainham jail symbolizes the British colonialism, but today it symbolizes the Irish determination to be free, doesn't it? It does. And it's, yeah, it's extraordinary that you remember those letters. I remember them too, because a lot of those men were very young, actually, you know, 20s and 30s. And so some of them were married with children. Others were exactly, they were writing to their mothers. They knew they would be executed in the morning. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, their legacy really did... Um, stay the course, and they became martyrs. You know, their words echoed. And the Kilmainham Jail really uh, must mean a lot to the people of Ireland. What an amazing experience to go there and, and just get caught up in the spirit of Ireland. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Maeve Higgins as we explore what she's been noticing lately in her latest book. It's called Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. Maeve also does stand-up comedy most Monday nights as part of the Butterboy Comedy Trio at Littlefield in Brooklyn, New York. You'll find links to her earlier visit with us in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. So Maeve, specifically, tell everyone on this train I love them. What's the backstory there? It actually comes from this terrible thing that happened on a train once, which was in Portland and Oregon in 2017, when there was a man who was um, about to attack two young girls and these girls were black and uh, one of them was in hijab and he was a white supremacist. And then um, some men stepped up, just some other passengers on the train. They didn't even know one another. They stepped up to defend the girls. And, you know, horrifically, he he stabbed them. He killed two men. Um, he really injured the other one. But what struck me really, Rick, was that one of the men, Talisin Mridin Namkai Meche, his name is, as he was dying on the train, there was another passenger who came to his aid and she reported that his final words were, tell everyone on this train, I love them. Mm. And I couldn't believe that when I read that, you know, it was such a horrifying story. And it was also a story of compassion and heroism, because who knows what would have happened to those two girls if the men hadn't protected them. Yes. But also to have that kind of, literally as he was dying, to have that kind of 
beautiful instinct to still send out love, it really, it really blew my mind because everyone on the train was a stranger to him. But his last words were that he loved them. So I tried to hold on to those words myself. That is so touching. And Mm -hmm. it really leads into this difficult struggle that we're having as a nation now when it comes to immigration. Of course, the the people on the tragic end of this story are are usually people of color and and people who might have a different religion. Uh, But, you know, we Americans love our Statue of Liberty and we we don't really take too seriously what that symbolizes. You know, give me your struggling, give me your huddled Mm. masses. Uh, When I was a little kid, I remember my grandparents came over from Norway and my great-grandmother, she'd she'd ruffle my hair and she'd say, good stock. (laughs) And it wasn't until decades later that I realized good stock, that was an actual immigration uh, precondition that I was of good stock. I was Norwegian, you know, that was okay. And uh, I I never realized that until now. And now we have the same integration we've always had, but we have people who are visually a little different and they are not considered good stock. You've dealt with that because you're of good stock and you have a... What was your immigration experience like when you got your... What do you have? You got some kind of equivalent of a green card? Yeah, well, the visa that I got is pretty funny. It's called... um, the, an alien of extraordinary ability visa, which is the one you the get. Alien if you're... of extraordinary ability. You could wear that on a t-shirt. <laughs> oh my goodness! I know it's for artists or athletes, and uh, you know. Again, um, I think that it was made easier for me. That good stock phrase is really echoing around my brain. That's that's extraordinary. I think that whiteness has a huge role to play in immigration. Yeah. It's the path is really much easier for white people. And I'm, I'm not just saying that. It's very, very but, true. But, but you lived no. that. Mm-hmm. It was like America was happy to accept you mm-hmm. uh, almost because you didn't need to be here. You were, you were a privileged person. But then you went down to a border security expo. You wrote about it in a fascinating way. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Well, it was it was incredible. I mean, I think, you know, anybody who went there would would have had their eyes open, you know, unless you're already in that industry. And it's that's what it is, really. It's an it's an industry. There's a huge, you know, billions and billions of dollars spent on the uh, southern border each year. So I went down to San Antonio where they have kind of a big conference center and they sell drones and dog kennels and different types of walls that you, you know, can't climb over. And it's it's run by the Department of Homeland Security. So, you know, there's Border Patrol agents doing talks and I spent a few days there and they have an event at the Alamo where I had never been to the Alamo before. And it was interesting to get the perspective of, you know, American Border Patrol agents who really see the Alamo um, in a very different way than any Mexicans might see it. And so that's a polite way to put it. Remember the Alamo. (laughs) Remember the Alamo. Keep them out of here. Good stock is all we want. Yeah. Yeah. There was, you know, literally there was they were raffling off homemade rifles and they were selling um, big printed pictures of, you know, that judge on the Supreme Court who said, I love beer. I like beer. That man. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was just a really fascinating insight. And it was also quite devastating, to be honest, because, as I said, I have been welcomed here with open arms. I've been allowed to make this incredible life for myself full of opportunity Mm. when really things in Ireland are not so bad. You know, I would have been fine there. Um, And then you have these other immigrants who contribute so much but are really maligned. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Irish-born comedian and writer Maeve Higgins, and her latest book of observations is called Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. Maeve, you mentioned in your book how boyfriends and girlfriends in the immigrant community, uh, if, if one of them is not documented, they can actually threaten each other by saying, I'll call immigration. I never thought about that mm-hmm. whole idea that somebody had the power of your, of your life, really, just by, make, by, by threatening to make a phone call. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, um, it's that little crux where the personal meets the system, I suppose, that can be so dangerous. And deportation is a very violent thing. It's, it's a long process. It's a slow process, but it's, it's very violent. If you talk to people who've been deported, you're often detained for a long time and you really have very few rights. And it's, it's, very, it's a very difficult thing to go through. Um, but yeah, you can. I mean, I don't know if you remember during the Trump presidency, he set up a phone line for people to call in and say who was un- undocumented. Yeah. So yeah, in romantic relationships, when it goes wrong, um, also in work relationships, like if your your boss can certainly exploit you a lot easier if he knows that you don't have um, status here. And I would imagine that happened a fair amount. It happens a fair amount. Yeah. So I think pe- a lot of undocumented people are careful who they tell and and, you know, for that reason, crime rates are extremely low within the undocumented community. Like they're pretty much the best behaved people that you could have in a country, which is, again, why it's so baffling to me that they're so um, kind of kicked around, especially when there's nine million people in the workforce that you are know, undocumented. I so dearly wish that all of the undocumented immigrants could be organized and strong enough to go on strike for one week. Just so oh. that the rest of us would understand what they contribute wow. to our society. Can you imagine if every undocumented labor decided for, for seven days, we're going to stay home and we'll let you think about having your kids do this work? Because, frankly, nobody else wants to do it and we're here to do it and we're thankful for it. Well, that's so, oh my God. Well, first of all, so many undocumented people, you know, construction, childcare, um, agricultural work, Things would really come to a standstill. But I do think as well, we have to be careful thinking that way, because as you know, Rick, like it's not just what you do that makes you valuable. It's who you are, you know, for your family and your friends and people who love you. And it's the same for undocumented people, you know, even if they're an old lady who who can't work or Mm -hmm. a, a three year old who just, you know, needs to go to school and isn't contributing in such a way. Um, every life is, is important because it's a life, you know. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I learned a lot about that by dropping in on a, on a meeting at my church. Uh, the um, immigrant workers in our community didn't have a roof over their heads to have a meeting, so they used our church. Hmm. And I realized by listening to them what a constant terror it is for families. To, if, if, if one day ICE could sweep in and, and take your father away, that leaves you know, a broken family and people in very difficult straits. So it's a complicated issue. We have to have, we have, to have rules for immigration. It's got to be fair. It's got to be consistent. But we're dealing with real people with a real story that are every bit as deserving as people of, quote, good stock like me. <laughs> and frankly, my stock's even better than yours. No, uh, Norwegian. Irish, you know? <laughs> I, I just love a little sturdy Norwegian boy. Just that image is just so funny to me. Oh, my grandma. Come on was, in and, she, you know, <laughs> She was like cows. Whistler's mother and she'd reach out and she'd <laughs> muss my hair. That's good stock. That's oh my, my grandson. Oh, my goodness. 
<laughs> Maeve, it's so nice to talk to you. Fascinating book. Tell everyone on this train I love them. Shining a light on our culture uh, through an Irish lens. Thank you so much. Maeve Higgins is the author of Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. She writes about her initial experiences as an immigrant in New York in Maeve in America, essays by a girl from somewhere else. We have a link to Maeve's columns for the New York Times in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Our County Cork connections continue next as Barry Maloney gives us the scoop on what makes his hometown, Kinsale, one of Ireland's most enjoyable year-round destinations. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Growing up on a farm just outside the portside town of Kinsale in Ireland's County Cork, Barry Maloney noticed that a remarkable history was written and the landscape all around him. Ruined castles, Georgian mansions, and the remains of a couple of strategic forts all were just the tip of the iceberg. Ireland's southern harbor town was once a crucial military and commercial port. Today, it's an easily walkable town of brightly painted storefronts and about 5,000 inhabitants. Kinsale, it's got a reputation as one of Ireland's best places to eat with great seafood restaurants. One of them even earned a Michelin star. Barry gives walking tours in Kinsale and has just written a book on his hometown. And the book is called Kinsale. He joins us now to tell us about the town he knows and loves so well. Hey, Barry. Hi, Rick. Uh, Pleasure to be with you. So nice to have you on, and and I'm so happy that you've put the joy and the fun and the insights of your guided walks into the book. I'll never forget turning over one of my groups to to you, and you just entertained us with your uh, walking tour. Tell us about writing the book. How how much of it was just giving basically all the stories you tell in your walk, and then uh, how how did you? Great question, yeah. Rick. Um, I, I was kind of naive to writing, so I thought it'd be it'd be very simple, just writing down what I say on a tour. Yeah. And uh, it took a lot longer than I thought. And a local journalist helped me a lot with that, you know, the process, because okay. telling a story and writing a story are completely different. Well, Kinsale has, it's it seems like just a small touristy town on the south coast of, of Ireland, but it has an amazing history. And I want to get into that. First of all, I'm I'm just... I was always fascinated by, it was the, they always say, self-proclaimed culinary capital of Ireland. How did that happen? I mean, uh, Ireland was not originally famous for its cuisine, and now it really deserves a good look from its cuisine point of view, and Kinsale really is an outstanding destination for people who like to eat. Good point, Rick. People used to say 50 years ago they came to Ireland despite the food. Yeah, so true. And now people come because of the food. So it's been a revolution. And uh, Kinsale, I think really what drew so many good chefs to Kinsale is the ingredients. You know, you've got the fresh seafood coming in uh, into the harbour every day and you've got great farms outside and local source. Local sourcing is the real, uh, the real vibe at the moment, you know. How, how have the restaurants done during the pandemic? Because, you know, we've had two lost seasons. Yeah, survived pretty well because uh, staycationers have been very kind to Kinsale. And remember, we have... Just 20 minutes driveway, 120,000 people live in Cork City, whereas Kinsale is oh, yeah. just 5,000 people. You know how many restaurants we have? We have 55 eating houses. Whoa. So, so for, 55 five, for a little town of 5,000 people, that's really yeah. impressive. And, and Also, outdoor dining has become much more the vibe, which really fits into Kinsale because the town council have pedestrianized a lot more streets and squares. And let's face it, hmm. Kinsale was... Kinsale evolved from medieval times when there was no cars. So our streets are very, very narrow anyhow. 
Now, you mentioned uh, Little Kinsale with 5,000 people has so many restaurants and so many uh, things that really entertain the tourists. But you grew up in Kinsale, and um, you've seen a lot of change. Yeah, that's for sure, yeah. Well, describe your upbringing in Kinsale. Uh, well, I grew up on a farm just three miles up the river. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a much, I'm, I'm just over 50 years old, so it's a much, much simpler life. So it's, uh, it's evolved. And visually, you mentioned Kinsale's quite a colorful town. That has been the trend now, painting our shop fronts bright colors, almost psychedelic in some cases, you know. And in the Instagram age of today, uh, one snapshot on a, on a cobblestone corner in Kinsale spreads the word of the beauty of the town all around the world. Yeah, so tourism has blossomed. And it, my colleague Don, you know him well, he's, uh, he's now in his early 80s. When he started our walking tour just over 30 years ago, that was the first daily tourist attraction in Kinsale. Hmm. And back ago. then, there was less pastels. I mean, if you look at a, a photograph of Kinsale 100 years ago, you don't see all that cute pastel work, do you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, way, way back in, in uh, say, 400 years ago, most of the town was whitewashed, painted with a lime render. But there was an element of color came in because, you know, minerals came through, through the lime and kind of rusted and would have ended up being kind of oranges and yellow hues. So uh, there was a, maybe a, a touch of that even back then. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Barry Maloney, and he's taking us deep inside his hometown of Kinsale in Ireland right now. Barry hosts walking tours as half of a team called Don and Barry's Kinsale Historic Strolls. He also tells the town's remarkable history in his book, Kinsale. Barry's website is historicstrollkinsale.com. So, Barry, let's get into Kinsale now, because the key thing about Kinsale, apart from all of its great fresh seafood and its wonderful restaurants is this amazing history. And it goes back, what, it was born as a monastic settlement uh, 1,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. You, you wrote that it was the last stop before the edge of the world. How so? Well, we have a place name in Kinsale, World's End. And that was because in, in medieval times, let's face it, uh, before Columbus, there were, there, no ships were sailing west. So there was no traffic heading west. And we had that kind of outlook. But then if you go forward... In the 17th century, Kinsale was described as laying in the road of the chiefest trade of all the world. And therefore, we had fleets of English and Dutch ships sailing right past our coastline. And all we needed was a small percentage to come in to prosper our town. So we began to provision ships with basically oak barrels packed full of salted fish, beef, pork, cheese and butter and enough beer to promise the crew a gallon of beer a day. That's wow. eight pints a day. Sounds about right, doesn't it? So this is four, 400 years ago. And we got to remember back then, Ireland was part of Britain, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, especially Kinsale, because uh, Kinsale became militarized. As you know, two, two starship forts were built to guard the entrance to the harbor. And those forts were named James Fort and Charles Fort. Basically, and these were um, both built in the oh, 1600s. Yeah, almost exactly, Rick, when you were getting your Jamestown and Charlestown. We were getting huh. our James Fort and Charles Fort. Oh, that's that's interesting. And you said a star fort, and these were were state of the art. What what is a star fort, and why is it a big deal? Yeah, star shaped forts were were basically almost like the nuclear weapons of their age, you know, because they were impossible to take. With a star shaped formation, they created a curtain of crossfire, so they attacked any enemy, uh, not just straight on, but this curtain of crossfire. And Charles Fort, for example, had over a hundred cannons facing out to the harbor. So so once that was stamped on the map. The French, the Dutch, or the Spanish never attempted to take Kinsale again. 
it's easy for us to forget that Spain was a power back then and just uh, across the sea to the south. Sure. And uh, yeah, Spain had allies in Ireland because the Irish Catholic rebels were communicating with the Catholic King of Spain against the common enemy of Anglican England under Queen Elizabeth's rule. And they I had never thought kind of, of that. So Spain was a, the, the self-proclaimed protector of the Pope, you know, with the greatest exactly. army in Europe. So you have that natural alliance, that affinity for Ireland and Spain, uh, just like Scotland and France. Sure. And just thinking that your enemy's enemy could be your friend, you know. So when the Spanish yeah. did, did invade Kinsale in 1601, it triggered in England a Cuban missile crisis of sorts, with the Irish being the Cubans and the Spanish being the Russians, if you see the parallel. Oh, yes. Now, that was a pretty important battle, wasn't it? Was, that's the famous Battle of Kinsale? Yeah, the Battle of Kinsale on Christmas Eve, 1601. Needless to say, we lost. The Irish and the Spanish lost the battle. But in losing that battle, it led to the downfall of the Irish chieftainship system, a much stronger English rule in Ireland, and in Kinsale, a militarization and, and an Anglicization of the town. So I have this image, Barry, of all of the Irish warlords just broken and running for the countryside and just fleeing and exactly England then establishing was, yeah. their their toehold on Ireland. And then within five years, they've built James Fort right there. And it's really, that was Ireland's last chance for centuries. And after that, it was just uh, Ireland was downtrodden and Britain holds the key strategic forts. And it, it led also to, uh, you see, most of the chieftains who fought in the Battle of Kinsale were from the north of Ireland. And their loss in Kinsale created a vacuum of power in the north, which was filled by Scottish farmers moving across. And they were mostly huh. Presbyterian. So their arrival began the religious divide in the story of Northern Ireland. So all of this weaves together. And this is why I'm really enthusiastic about connecting travelers with guides like you who are local, who can explain things. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Barry Maloney, who's lived in the south of Ireland all his life, and he's got some stories about how Kinsale is one of Ireland's not only most delightful towns, but most historic towns. Barry leads walking tours as half of the Don and Barry's Kinsale Historic Strolls Company, and he's written a book on the town's lively history, and it's called Kinsale. We have links with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Now, when you have all of that heartache and all of that tragedy militarily, and then you have suffering and hunger that follows that when you're downtrodden with the great famine in the middle of the 1800s, you also get ghost stories. And I know one of the best places in Ireland for a ghost walk would be your town, Kinsale. What's with the ghosts and the scary stuff in Kinsale? Yeah, sure, Rick. Us Irish are very superstitious people, you know, and most Irish towns have a ghost story. And uh, a lot of ghost haunting Kinsale smugglers and ghosts of pirates and shipwrecks. But the most famous ghost was the female ghost, the White Lady. She haunts Charles Fort. The emergence of this ghost, the White Lady, goes back to a tragedy on her wedding day. And that's why she's white, wearing her wedding dress. The story goes that she married a soldier in Charles Fort. Her father was the governor of the fort, after all. And on the evening of the wedding, the two, the newly wed bride and groom, were walking on the walls of Charles Fort. When they looked down beneath them and the wife saw some wild Irish flowers, which she expressed the love to have as a souvenir of their wedding day. So, of course, the husband said, I'll get the flowers for you. You go back to your room. She went back to her room and the husband didn't look down over the wall and realized he was afraid to climb down. So he asked the soldier on duty to get the flowers for him. 
And the soldier agreed on one very important condition, which was that they swap clothes because that soldier could not abandon his sentry post in a time of war, the punishment for which would be execution on the spot. And uh, the husband, dressed like the soldier, waited on the wall, while the soldier, dressed like the husband, went to get the flowers. And meanwhile, unfortunately, the husband fell asleep. And that was the worst thing, worst mistake of his life, because while he was sleeping, the governor of the fort, the father of the bride, was walking along the wall and was enraged when he saw or thought he saw a soldier asleep on duty and without warning he put out his revolver and shot the man dead on the spot not realizing he just shot the man who had married his daughter and of course the daughter heard the shot she ran up to the wall and when she saw her father with a smoking gun and her husband dead on the ground with a scream those that heard it never forgot that scream she ran to the edge of charles fort and threw herself down and died on the rocks below and ever since, people began to see the, the mysterious ghost dressed in white calling out for her husband. Oh, my goodness. The legend was born. And the White Lady today, the story of the White Lady, entertains tourists when they come to Kinsale. Hey, um, Barry, what was the impact of the Great Famine in the middle of the 1800s on Kinsale, and how did that shape the town? Yeah, good question. The, the, the famine had a, uh, there was kind of a division in, in most of Ireland, but especially in Kinsale, because the wealthy were living in the town, in Georgian homes, whereas the poor farming community outside the town walls were living in uh, windowless shacks. Uh, so when the potato crop failed, they were hit very, very badly and uh, appealed for help to the town. Unfortunately, with the London-centred uh, government at the time and the, the slow pace of bureaucracy, help came too late because uh, the English government at the time did not believe in famine aid. They believed that you had to work for your crust, literally. So you, you, you worked by ma- building roads and infrastructure and you'd be paid and then you could go to the soup kitchen and uh, buy something to keep your family uh, alive. But unfortunately... So when you say the... So you have the wealthy within the safety of the walls, and then you have the Catholic indigenous people. I always think of it in, in kind of modern terms. You think of indigenous people who are giving the colonial overlords trouble, you know. You have to keep them down. And even during the, the famine, I think they, were, they continued to export food to England. And I'm it was sure, just yeah, the, yeah. the peasants didn't have buying power. All they had buying power for was potatoes, and the potatoes didn't grow. But the export crops, they were doing fine, and people were still exporting to England telling the peasants just, you got to work harder to get your crust. Sure, Rick. And, you know, you know uh, so the government really didn't uh, respond well. But, you know, who stepped into the breach in Kinsale were the, the sisters, the Sisters of Mercy in the convent. They oh, became yeah. experts in feeding the local poor and uh, providing education and also nursing the sick from cholera. And oh, that meant goodness. when the famine passed, three of them went to Crimea and nursed side by side with Florence Nightingale, no less. Huh. So much history. So much history. Amazing history, yeah. Kinsale is a favorite seaside town for the Irish to enjoy as a weekend getaway, and it's just a quick drive south of Cork City. It's also become quite popular for a culinary and historic destination for visitors from abroad. Kinsale is Barry Maloney's hometown, and he's telling us on Travel with Rick Steves what makes it stand out among Ireland's many choices for delightful small towns. Barry tells tales on his walking tours of the town's colorful history, and he's collected them in his book called Kinsale. You'll find web links with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. 
Barry, let's just wrap it up on Kinsale here. I'm just curious, what is Kinsale known for among the Irish? Because I know it's known as a a, a great stop on the south coast for Mm -hmm. the cuisine, for the tourist. But what do the rest of people of Ireland think about your hometown? Yeah, amongst the Irish, uh, Kinsale is known number one for its beauty. You know, it's really, really, I mean, when you stand in the town centre there, you've got this feeling you're kind of nestled in the palm of a protected hand with high ground all around you and the docksides and the shoreline and the yachts in the marina just there. So it's really, it's a, it's a photographer's dream to visit. And didn't Kinsale kind of capitalise on that? You guys won the Tidy Town competition. Yes, yeah, we have done. And it's, not, it's known also for its uh, activities, you know. There's something to do all year round. You know, in the winter, it's a, it's a surfer's paradise for windsurfing or kite surfing or sailing. And uh, then in the spring, you know, the festivals kick off and you have uh, seafood chowder cooking festivals and food nice. festivals and music. And it, it really, there's always something on because people from all over the world, historically, and even in modern times, settle here. You know, Barry, I've had some great meals in Kinsale, some great meals with you. Uh, yeah. Let's wrap up our conversation just by you taking me to one more meal in Kinsale. And we've been talking about how it's the self-proclaimed gourmet capital of Ireland. Describe our, our eating and drinking experience and where we'd have that meal. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, it's hard to pick out one of all the restaurants, but uh, I know there's a restaurant that you really loved your, on your last visit. It's called uh, Finn's Table. Oh, yeah. And uh, they've reinvented themselves now because they now call themselves Finn's Farm Cut. So all their, all their produce comes from the family farm. So okay. They're, they're now more, uh, a lot, a lot focused on beef, but also seafood as well. And what would we be? What would you order for me? What would we eat? Oh, we'd probably start with a starter of uh, scallops, and uh, then main course. I'd have to have to treat you and have to go for lobster, you know, because oh, uh, yeah. there's something really special about you know with this fresh salt air during the day, hiking around the town, hiking up to the fort, and then capping it off with seafood and a pint of local stout, Murphy's. Okay, and you don't say Guinness. It's the Murphy's is the stout of the south coast of Ireland. That's it, yeah. Or, or, or a sip of Jameson, if you want, to try some <laughs> uh, good good Catholic whiskey. Good Catholic whiskey. And then if I remember correctly, Barry, up on the wall, there's uh, big photographs of the fishermen who harvested these uh, beautiful um, fruit of the sea. Oh, sure, that's in, uh, that's in Fishy Fishy, your other uh, favorite ah. spot for lunch. And uh, yeah, three generations, no less. Ah, Son, father, and grandfather of the Hurley family, all supplying fresh seafood to the restaurants of Kinsale. Well, the historic and the tasty heritage of Kinsale survives. Barry Maloney, congratulations on your book, and, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Rick. Uh, wonderful to talk to you again. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Read what Rick's been thinking about lately on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find out more about our guests each week on our website at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.